welcome to the Independent Thinking Show for Fear Thrifts Radio. This is a place dedicated to showcasing the great people doing interesting things in the world of horology. My name is Roman, and today I'm joined by my friend and co-host Adam from Medium Watch. Hi Adam, how are you? Very well, how are you? Today, we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, he's a man with an eclectic and exquisite taste, a deep sense of the aesthetic, and an exceptional collection of timepieces. We're very glad to finally have him on the show. Uh, please welcome Mr. Todd Levin. Hello, Todd. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you finally. It's taken us a little while to get the diaries and calendars aligned, but I'm glad <laughs> we're finally uh, kicking 2021 off with a bang. Look, Todd, maybe the best place to start is we usually put our guests on the spot first thing up. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before we dive in. Okay. Um, a brief summary would be that I grew up in the United States, in the Midwest, Detroit specifically, and became involved in the visual art world um, significantly probably around the late 70s. And as I was going through university, that ramped up. And at the same time that I was pursuing my degree in art history, I was also pursuing uh, contiguously a degree in music composition. I eventually doctored uh, in both and uh, moved to New York City on November 5th, 1990. And I have lived there ever since. and in terms of watches, I got interested about really, I nascently got involved through my father, who certainly suddenly at an advanced age kind of uh, evinced an interest in timepieces around 2007, 8, 9. Uh, he passed in 2011. And then mm. many years later, I kind of picked up that thread. Uh, through a odd situation, and um, I've been interested in horology really, and began studying it approximately, let's say, three years ago. So I'm I'm rather new to the scene. I, I haven't been deeply involved for a, a uh, long period of time. Wow, I mean, for someone fairly new to the um, to the world of horology, you've certainly entered into it with with some you know passion knowledge and and assurance and we'll certainly talk about sort of your collection and sort of the the the, the building up of your knowledge and layers as well um just stepping back a little bit um you mentioned art you mentioned music i know adam and i we've been doing a little bit of research and i think adam has been really enjoying the the back catalogue of your compositions. So I'm sure he will he will talk to you about that. <laughs> He's been yeah, really well. I, uh, I, I I owe him my condolences if that's the case. Oh no, oh no, don't say that. It's 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 no. I won't I won't say too much about it because I think Adam will you know will rhapsodize about it. And I use that word. Yeah, <laughs> quite, yeah. Uh, yeah. quite. Um, just step step back a little bit as well. One of the questions that we had when Adam and, and I decided to sort of, you know, re, when we got a chance to talk to you, one of the things that really jumped out to us is you, you, you live in a very particularly significant place, particularly significant house, and maybe you can tell us about it in a second. One of the things we thought about is living in some, something like that, which Frank Lodge writes, Stuart Richardson House, you're a steward of something, you know. Do you think that has... Um, that has changed how you approach 
owning things or taking care of things, living in a significant location like that? Well, I've been fortunate to have lived with very significant artworks for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and more recently, I've been fortunate enough to own a couple of significant, um, I think, horological masterpieces. So the concept of stewardship, whether it's a home or it's an artwork or it's a watch or whatever else one might collect, whether it's, you know, the stewardship of wine or cars or could be comic books or baseball cards or coins or stamps. I mean, there's no there's no limitation or qualitative difference. Um, if something is special within its own world, then it's special. Uh, and you don't want to remove that sense of specialness just because some people might view the object uh, as sort of uh, unworthy uh, compared to other acceptable, uh, you know, arenas of collecting. I mean, mm. for me, if, if, if it's a rare Superman number one uh, action, you know, action number one comic book that's in, you know, um, kind of, uh, you know, graded, you know, at sort of a nine out of 10, uh, I know that that's going to be worth two and a half million dollars. I know how rare those are. And that's just as spectacular and interesting and, and neat uh, in its own way, as is a hundred carat a D-color flawless diamond or a Jackson Pollock painting or a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Uh, they all carry their own, you know, interest. And, and I've always tried really hard not to have those sort of artificial societal kind of imposed um, demarcations between what would be considered, you know, worthy of, of one's uh, interest or stewardship and, and what might not be simply because of its content. I don't think it's something that's content driven. So the house is no different than many of the other things, you know, that I own in that way. I mean, it's different because it's a house, but in terms of the component you're speaking of specifically of stewardship, there's really no difference at all. Then, you know, I mean, I'm going to own this house and I'm going to take care of it. And there are certain responsibilities that are inherent with that. But I think that's the same if you buy like a really nice watch. Um, and I think it's the same, you know, there's care involved and it, it, it's going to need attention at certain points in your, in its, you know, life as the two of you go through life together and the same for an artwork. Uh, so yeah, I, I sort of view it as a rather holistic approach and, and not sort of as a, you know, a separate, unique thing. Mm. Uh, and do you think, you know, owning something like that, whether it's a beautiful artwork or a house or a watch, do you think there is a responsibility as the owner to keep it as it is or to remodel or change it, you know, as things go? So I'm thinking of watches, for example, you know, you can get it, you, know, you can get a piece that's very rare. You can get a new dial, you know, you yeah. have a house, you can build an extension or something. Do you think right. there is? Yeah, exactly. Same thing exists with art. I mean, how mm. much conservation if a piece is damaged or simply is very old and uh, the materials are starting to degrade because every material is fugitive. The oil, you know, is so-called oil, you know, the lubricant sure. in, in, in every mm. watch eventually wears mm. out, right? It degrades. Um, the materials that paintings are created with, uh, the, the various paints, the various stains, the various varnishes, um, you know, even if it's a photograph, the various emulsions on the paper, all that degrades over time. And the same thing, all the mm. materials that a house is built out of degrade over time. So it's a constant, this is a constant fight, not so much about st stewardship per se, but it's about the balance between, um, not authenticity, but the, uh, the the balance between trying to maintain as close, as much as one can, the original mm. concept and manifestation 
of the creator's intent on one hand, balanced with over time, the object in question is going to require uh, cleaning, care, conservation, and whatnot. And how how do you balance those two things? And and every situation obviously is extremely sure. fluid and dynamic and unique. Again, so there's no one singular answer. Oh, you do this and this, but you don't do that and that. A- every case, even if you're just you know, if I'm talking with an artwork, one piece I might be, one painting I might be much more comfortable with a more extensive amount of conservation mm-hmm. if required. Where another painting, I would just prefer, you know, yeah. almost to let the thing crumble to dust, but not really fumble too much with it. And and, and it just it just um, depends. So there's no easy answer mm. on any of that. It, it's a fascinating thing, and that's something that can. It's built, yeah, and it's built up over you know decades of experience, and experience really is the only thing that breeds expertise. There's no way to do it faster. It's it's a temporal thing. You can't like get experience faster. You just <laughs> it, it's a process, and you have to you know you have to go through that entire process. And the more you go through it, the more you experience, the wider your bandwidth. Probably the that's one of the major components is to the more informed decisions you're going to be able to come to as a so-called expert. Uh, be, you know, because that's where your expertise mm. is coming from with regards to when you are then confronted with a watch or an artwork or a house or a car or whatever it is, uh, or comic book, you know, that that may require care. Uh, and, and, and who's going to be responsible for doing that? Which conservator is going to be involved? And how far are they going to go? And, and, and what should be done? And what, what's the line that we're simply not going to cross? And, and all those components, again, it, it's very, it's very mutable. So it's a, case-by-case dynamic yeah look it's a fantastic answer and i think i'm so glad we're having this conversation because you bring this wealth of knowledge and experience into horology that you've accumulated in in other spheres and i think that that really shows um one of the other questions i had was really stemming from your sort of art world and moving into uh, the horology world is this concept of provenance. You know, typically, I mean, houses would be even even an easier way to trace. You know, sort of a chain of ownership. Um, artwork, you know, it's quite an important thing. Have you found that there's a similar or different emphasis on provenance of some pieces that you particularly search for, or does provenance not matter in watches as much as it does in art? Let's say. Well, I, I think art and jewelry, any fine jewelry. This goes for really fine diamonds. Mm by the way, not just uh, horological items. Mm-hmm. And and fine art, provenance confers a couple of things that give people comfort. The first is if the provenance is perfect and unbreakable and can be clearly traced without any, we're going to assume without any question whatsoever, all the way back to the maker, that immediately confers authenticity on the work. So the question of authenticity is one situation. The The, the next reason provenance is important is if as we all know, if a certain person owned a certain thing, sometimes, not always, but sometimes that can translate uh, to um, additional value in some people's eyes being conferred on that object. A classic case in point is the recent sale of the Paul Newman Daytona. I mean, that Daytona would cost Mm. X under one circumstance, and simply because that was that specific thing, it sold for Y. Uh, many multiples of X. And the only difference between the two things was that one had a provenance. Um, 
so it can confer it, it can confer some kind of value in the eyes of certain collectors, um, and in others, not. Uh, so there's authenticity and there's value. Uh, uh, the which translates essentially into price, but those mm. are two very different concepts, and not to be confused, or those words shouldn't be used, you know, in, in this sure. with this you know same intent. Um, and then finally, um, you have the issue of it, as you are tracing back the provenance of an item, it is uh, very useful in terms of uh, condition. And if you have issues about condition, you can know when the piece might have been worked on and who might have worked on the piece and, and when that might have happened. And that can also, by the way, that can also affect value and price, uh, as well as settle some authenticity issues that may come to light. So provenance affects all these areas, but again, it's case by case. In some cases, it has a very meaningful effect. And in some cases, it has at best a modest effect, if any at all. Mm. So it just depends. Mm. So we're just about to start on Todd's real journey into watches as well. And we can do some wrist checks as well, if, if you like. So uh, what's on everyone's wrist? Uh, why don't you, Todd, you go first as our esteemed guest. Yeah, I'm wearing my most recent purchase, actually. I just bought this um, maybe a month ago. It's a Roger W. Smith Series 2 open dial, now called the Series 5 because he changed the name. But this is, uh, um, you know, uh, an earlier one. So this officially is a Series 2 open dial. Wow. Fantastic. That's a mic drop. I mean, we, we should just go home, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you, Adam? What's on? What's gracing your wrist today? So I am wearing a watch from Russia. It is a Luch that was inspired by Malovich, uh, the, the Univos, which has a white dial and then a rectangular red hand and a rectangular black hand. I figured I would uh, pick something that was inspired by suprematism as, uh, I don't know, the segue into this recording. And yourself, Remen? Uh, well, I actually went in a slightly different direction. I picked a watch that I don't wear very often. It's a quartz watch. It's a Accurist Greenwich Grand Complication. And the reason I, I'm wearing that is I believe that watch has the same quartz movement as the watch in a Todd's father's Citizen Campanola. I know Todd has spoken about it, about that particular watch and how it spurred his interest in horology in the first place. I think in a Hadinki oh, yes. episode, talking watches. Yeah. So, and I went, yeah, so when we were talking about it, and I, I knew you were going to wear your art watch, and I thought that was perfect. <laughs> that was a perfect segue. I thought, that's great. And we, and Adam and I have the same watch, so we thought we could do twinsies. <laughs> but I said, no, I'll, you know, I'll anchor it. Sort of, you know, you you anchor it in Todd in our guest's art world. I'll sort of go into the beginning of his horological journey as maybe a spur to discuss sort of how, yeah, Todd got into watches in the first place. Yes, and how do you decide what you want to add to your collection? I I really wish I could give you some sort of like clearly scientific answer to that. That seemed extraordinarily well thought <laughs> out strategically, but the truth is. You know, the collection as it is, is four items. So let's not get carried away to begin with. Um, and then if you count my dad's watch, the one you were referring to, but it's really his watch. I don't, I just like, I'm a, you know, a keeper of it. Then there would be like five, but really I've only bought four watches. So um, at this point, the field is extremely wide open and it's more about just doing tremendous amounts of 
not tremendous amounts, but it's enjoyable. But I mean, a lot of reading and looking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I get very deep and interested in something. And then over time, you know, I feel perhaps less inclined. And, and I also have a standard kind of approach where if I see something or read about something or am exposed to something that everybody seems to feel is like really something. And somehow like I'm, I'm like, I don't, um, I don't, you know, uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, it, it doesn't mm. attract me at all. I will redouble my efforts to completely sort of go into a deep dive and fully um, review everything about that watchmaker or that specific model or whatever so that I have, rather than making a decision about something from like a point of ignorance, like I don't like it because it's, you know, I don't know, blue or I don't like the face or what, 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 what whatever the case may be, I, I want to be able to say I like or I don't like something because it's coming from a point of understanding. Now, I may go full circle on something and come back to it. And by the way, I may still decide that I, my initial reaction was correct and I don't like it. But many times when I circle around on something that deeply, by the time I come full circle, what's really happened is even if I don't maybe feel it's for me, I, I really have an appreciation for that particular watch. And um, that w is very useful as I begin to look at other things. I can use that as an additional you know, experiential reference point. So, um, like for instance, I, I can tell you when I first saw watches by Jorn, I just didn't like the aesthetic design at all. Um, I don't like all the writing on the face, you know, first yeah. it has the name, which is great. And then it's got the invent in Felice or whatever, um, you know, tagline, which I don't know why that needs to be. Yeah. I, it's like that just doesn't need to be on the face at all. And then it sometimes has the entire name of the watch. It's a description of the thing that's already on your wrist, which you know what it is, but it's telling you it's like, you know, you know, so then there's that. And then sometimes there's even other stuff and, and, and I don't even like the font, you know, like from a design perspective. So it's like, it's very hard for me. It was initially to look at Jorn watches and just from an aesthetic point of view, I mean, I admire the movement and I admire other components of it. it it's just, we're talking visual aesthetics, right? Mm. Of, the, of, of the dial or the face. But admittedly, as I've done more research on Jorn and spent a lot of time doing a rather deep dive on him, you know, I've come around to really appreciating what he's accomplished. Um, I think that if the prices of like the original models were a little bit less insane, I might actually consider looking at like a, a, a tourbillon souverain or something like that, mm. or, or a resonance, which I really think, honestly, if you, you know, really are going to do a join, it, it's, it's really about the resonance. You know, that's really mm. the model that yeah. is, is what he's about, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, the prices for these, these subscriptions already are, you know, in seven figures, and I'm just, yeah, that's not happening, you know, kind of thing. So it, it's, it's, past me the ship has sailed and that also sort of settled the score for me like the ship sailed so i don't have to think about it anymore it's not even <laughs> a decision i have to make and that kind of helps you know admittedly yeah. but at least i have an appreciation i you know i understand you know the first stage turbine super on the second stage the third stage the fourth stage how many were made you know 20 in the subscription 16 or 17 in the number two you know how many were the etc and all the metals possibilities and and you know all the all the information on the movement and so now at least when i look at it i feel like i'm i'm an informed consumer or you mm. know r rather than somebody who's just like i don't like it 
you know, because I don't like like the the font. That seems like a ridiculous yeah. reason to like not sh- or or to choose something. Yeah, I totally agree. Listening to the HSNY presentation on Joran made me appreciate the science behind it, even though it's not to my aesthetic taste. So, is this approach the same approach you take to art, or is it a different approach? And if it's different, why is it different? Well, I think it's fundamentally the same. I mean, my approach in terms of developing expertise in art, you know, I've been involved now in the art world for about 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the application to horology, and, and it doesn't really matter what your vectors of, of interest are. You know, you can be interested in watches, as we're talking here, or fine art, or, or, or um, architecture. That's sort of some of my things, along with uh, mm-hmm. jazz, uh, rare jazz LPs. But you can collect comic books, as I said earlier, or or baseball cards, or, or watches, or wine, or, or um you know, stamps or coins or cars, some people, you know, love to collect. It really doesn't matter what you collect. And there's no, you know, as I had said earlier, um, I, I don't, I, I refuse to see any sort of artificial uh, imposition on it. Like this is worth looking at seriously and, and trying to understand the fine granular differences of what makes something in this particular silo more or less interesting or better than this other thing, which almost seems to be the same. You know, those areas, I just find that the desire for expertise in and of itself a worthy end game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, in the case of watches, I mean, look, there it's a different language. There's different things I have to come to understand, and that's a process. But uh, the, the, the fundamental thrust of what I do is, I'd say, pretty much the same. Well, tell us a little bit about the your four watch collection because if people who don't know you are about to be blown away by the just four watches you have <laughs> select curated for yourself do, do tell us a little bit about them yeah my, my first purchase was a, a dufour simplicity uh it's for those of people who know dufour it's it's the it's a 37 millimeter as opposed to the 34 it's platinum as opposed to uh you know one of the other metals and it's the um the silver guilloche uh, dial, as opposed to the ceramic uh, with the Roman numerals. So um, that's that's the model. Uh, I, if you know Dufour, it's essentially the one he wears on his wrist, except he mm. wears a 34, and, and this is the the, the uh, 37. Um, uh, so um, so that was my first watch. My second watch was um, uh, the Millennium by George Daniels. Uh, it's the particular Millennium that he made for a woman named. Tina Millar, and Tina used to be the head of the watch department for many, many years at Sotheby's in London, and therefore mm. Sotheby's, because back in the day, the, the, the most significant sales were in London. That shifted now, New York <laughs> for many auction houses, and, and um, uh, Zurich are, 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 are where the big sales are. But in the old days, it was, it was London. Um, uh, and uh, Tina had actually hired George to work in the watch department as a... Um, I guess you would say as somebody that she could um, use as, you know, sort of an endless, um, yeah, consultant, but just, you know, for reference, he knew so much about everything. Uh, so he went in, I think, one day a week mm. during the season, during the season, not year mm. round, and met with her and they did, the, you know, put together these, assembled the auctions and, and mm. whatnot. Uh, my third watch was another Daniels. It's the only other, I guess you'd say, production that uh, daniels that was made which is the uh the um anniversary model 
Uh, and that's the classic anniversary uh, in, you know, as is the millennium, both in yellow gold, oh, yeah. uh, n- n- not in any strange, you know, unusual metals. And I chose those. Uh, there were there are other medals for those, but I really, when I think of George, I think of him fundamentally as a as a pocket watch designer, mm. yeah. and 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 looking at the designs of his and and his wrist watches are strongly based on the initial design of the pocket watches mm. in terms of the aesthetics, the face, the sub dials, all that sort of the you know the engine turning everything pretty much. Mm. Um, so um, I really wanted the two models to have the closest look and feel to uh, what you might experience if you had a pocket watch. So while I like, I'm, and I'm aware that the um, both of these models come in white gold and the anniversary comes in a couple of other medals and a, a special order, um, uh, I, I went with what I felt was, you know, the one that would have been closest to sort of George's initial intent. Um, and then most recently is the is the watch we just discussed, which is, is um, Roger W. Smith, uh, which is the watch I'm wearing now. So that's that's it. You know, that's quite a full watch collection. I mean, you can yes. you, know, you can rest on your laurels. Not that uh, hopefully you're not retiring out of the game. <laughs> um, the question that really immediately jumped into my mind is when you said, you know, this Dufour Simplicity was your first watch. Now mm. that is a very assured, very mature in a sense of knowledge way to enter to enter the world of horology how did you zero in on dufour as your first step when you actually decided to yeah i think watches are a thing worthy of my attention and time how did you leap immediately to dufour well i didn't leap immediately i mean i i didn't buy anything immediately i probably just sort of studied and looked and read and spoke to a lot of people for a period of probably a couple of years. Mm. Uh, and the more that I studied and chatted and whatnot, and I attended some watch auctions, you know, just to get a feel of the room and the market and wanted to see who's bidding on what and what's coming up at auction and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I used mm. to work at Sotheby's way back in the 90s. So I understand not only and I'm comfortable with the whole auction dynamic, I guess, but having worked at the house, I know what's everything that's happening behind the scenes. I know how the reserves are being set. I know how the auctioneer is calling the auction. I can, I know the language. So it's very comfortable place for me to go. And when I walked in, even though I was new to the people in the watch department in the various houses, I've been doing business with them on behalf of the fine art department for, you know, decades. And I worked Mm. at Sotheby's, which many people still knew. So, um, uh, it provided me certainly a kind of entrant that was, uh, you know, uh, it, it speeded the process. Let's put sure. it that way, kind of thing. You know, I was I was not doing this. I I wasn't a normal person who was just, you know, coming to watches and, and I, I didn't know anything. I'm happy to admit that. But you know, there's 40 years of experience and other areas of expertise and sure. i can certainly short you know short circuit a lot of the the initial process stuff that happens and get sure. right to the heart of matters and also let's face it i mean i'm just saying like i'm an old guy i'm going to be 60 in a couple months um i'm in a very different i'm at a very different point where like a lot of entry-level collectors are sure. financially age-wise experience expertise you know i'm just being honest about it kind of thing so it's 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 you know um i was looking for something else i was i was you know i was interested in who which watch you know which watchmakers if if they're alive and i didn't even know when they if they were when i started you know admittedly <laughs> but which watchmakers are the ones that have really changed the history and language of horology 
kind of thing. I'm not looking for novelty. You know, novelty is like this year the dial's blue with um with uh baton markers and next year the dial is purple and you know it's got you know diamond markers and then we're going to do one that's got a rainbow bezel and then we got another one that you know you know like that's that has nothing to do with development that's all about branding marketing and novelty and 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 like a sort of artificial supply demand component added into that mix you know kind of thing in order to kind of like chuff the market Mm. a bit and 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 get like people in a, into a foaming frenzy about the new if i can put those two words in quotation marks the new um because that's fundamentally how companies continually in this world that we live in of like add short attention spans and the instagram scroll and all this you, you know um create in essence, that's how they create desire. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, for their for their brand, you know. Um, and there's a little leak. Uh, the, the the next one is either going to be have a green dial and it's going to be yellow gold, <laughs> or it's yeah. going to have um, you know a blue dial and be in platinum. And it, you know, kind of thing. And then it turns out that it's both. And then John Mayer says, "Well, you know, the green <laughs> dial one and gold is the sleeper, and everybody runs out like a man." You know, that's all fine. And there's nothing. By the way, there's nothing the matter with any of this. Sure. But if you don't understand what you're doing and you don't recognize that and you can't articulate that, that's where there's the problem. If you like sure. the green dial with the in, in gold or you like the sapphire rainbow bezel, I mean, and you've done your homework, right? And, and you know what you're doing and that's for you. I think that that's terrific because, you know, the, the, the world is, is a wide open place and everybody should, if they can afford it and, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, they, they should do what makes them happy. But what made me happy is understanding rather than that stuff, which I'm not saying is bad or wrong. What I'm saying mm. is specifically what interests me, as it does in the world of art, as it does in the world of architecture, as it does in the world of music, are people who fundamentally create a new language rather than repackage it and people who are you know, really fundamentally interested in development. And before, you know, certainly fits the bill. If, you, if, if you're somebody who's looking at at, at this entire situation through that lens. So in art, Alberis made thousands of squares that are incrementally different in very small ways. Is that similar or different to all these different dial company, different dial colors? Well, Albers, I mean, what, what I can say about Albers is Albers was interested specifically in color theory. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, that's what he was digging into. How does one color against another color if you'll forgive the pun, color our perception. <laughs> How does it force us to see relationships that otherwise might not be there? If I shift this color slightly against this other one, which I'll keep the same, then does that color, which one at first appeared one way, does it slightly appear slightly lighter or darker compared to this other color? His interest was in color perception. So all these endless squares of color within color within color that he created were a conceptual, rigorous conceptual investigation of perception. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like I'm, I'm selling a blue one this month and, and, and next year I'm selling a purple one. Yeah, it had nothing to do with that. He was working through a theory and that theory demanded that he continually, you know, basically pursue every potential option of color, of scale, and a relationship of those things to each other. And that, you know, when you're dealing with endless colors and endless scale, you know, you're talking about an infinite number of 
you know, works. So it, it, it's very different. I, I, I really, I get what you're going for, but I would say that there, but, but there are other artists who do do that, you know, kind of thing who, and some who use that as a tool. I mean, actually, the concept of the new, which we were discussing earlier, is a tool. Jeff Koons, mm-hmm. if you've mm. seen Koons' yep. work, is somebody or in the first 10 years of Jeff's career, which I think were some of the strongest work he made. And I know a lot of people like to poo-poo him now, but those early first 10 years, we're talking 79 through 89 or 80 through 90, that 10, 12 you know, year period, mm-hmm. late 70s to early, early 90s. Jeff, I think, made his strongest work. And every body of work he made was unveiled. Um, with a title for the entire body of work and a specific kind of concept behind that body of work. Like in the old days, I came from Detroit, as I said, and mm-hmm. every year at Cobo Hall in Detroit, that's where all the car companies, because, you know, for, you know, it was all in Detroit back in the 60s, right? They would they would release their new cars for the year, right? The 1964 Chevrolet, the 1964, you know, Ford, whatever. Mm. And of course you would have the, the, the cars would all be in a big hall on those rotating pedestals with the models, you know, that, you know, kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, it was, and it was, a, it was a reveal that happened all at once. And it was like the new seasons, the new colors, the new car. Jeff kind of appropriated that idea or that concept as he went through each one of these bodies of work. So each one was like, here's the new series, and then another, the new series. And he went from one to the other. But he did that on purpose. It was done in a, you know, with a very specific content, you know, you know, contextual way. Um, Mm. There are other artists who do that, and they're just basically banging out product, which is kind of what I'm talking about when, you know, it's like (laughs) a pink dial or a blue dial this year, whatever. Um, You know, um, there, there are, there are certainly artists who just simply bang out content you know, kind of thing, uh, with a slight change, with a tiny alteration. So then people will buy that one too. And that's like, that does of course happen. Mm. Well, I think one of the questions that, that, that we had was certainly about, you know, your particular focus on individual makers rather than manufacturers. And I think you've answered that in a sense. I think it's easier to see conception. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am attracted to probably more the, 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 you know, the single person, mm. but it doesn't have to be a single person like George Daniels. I mean, they can work with a studio, you know, studio. I, I don't have any problem with that. I, I don't think, a, you know, an artwork has to be created by one single pair of hands, the artists alone, you know, uh, many pieces demand a lot of expertise these days, particularly complicated sculptural works. You've got to have, you know, um, people who produce the, the sculpture in the first place. And then other people who are, are going to help shape the, the sculpture, you, you know, but it's all yeah. under the artist's eye. It's at the end of the day, it's the intent. It's the conceptual intent that matters. If 27 people help to manifest that intent out in the real world, that's fine. And whether that's an artist or, you know, in, in an atelier, which goes all the way back, let's face it, to the mm. Renaissance with Michelangelo and Leonardo and all these artists had workshops. I mean, it's hardly a unique thing. Or whether it's a contemporary situation today with an artist like Warhol or Coons, or in a horological case, you know, it'd be like, Jean is a perfect case of that. Like, it, it, it's one person's, like, an artist's eye, right? But of course, he's got, like, a, a, a you know, a cast of whatever it is, tens or hundreds. I, I don't know how many people are employed by him, you know, helping him to realize that because he can't design the entire thing and then make every screw you know out of base metal by hand and still produce 900 600 whatever it is six to nine hundred items yeah. a year that's not going to be feasible uh so you know something's going to have to give and and that's just if you're going to dock somebody on that that's just kind of you know you're being a moron 
as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And is there any particular reason that you focused on watches created in the late 20th and early 21st century? Is it really the emergence of these more independent creators, or is there another reason? Well, that's one reason, so that's fair. And the other reason is, is vintage watches are a minefield. Mm. And I knew immediately after spending five minutes looking at vintage watches that it was going to take me like 10 <laughs> years to figure out what the hell was going on. And like w- these questions of conservation and originality and authenticity that we were talking about earlier don't exist when you're buying like, you know, a, a, you know, a, a watch that was made and the person mm. is still alive. Because it's either correct or it's not. I mean, it's very dumbed down. So it's a much simpler, in a certain way, it's a much, on that account, it's, it's a very simple decision. It's either correct or it's not. But when you're looking at a vintage 2499 or a 1518 by Paddock, you know, even a Nautilus, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, I'm talking like a 3700, right? Or um, you're, you know, talk, you're looking at Rolex, you're talking about like all the various Daytona models, or, you know, going even earlier to the, you know, the, the uh, 6538, you know, 6200, these earlier models, it's like, are the hands original? Is the face original? Were they worked on? How much polishing has been done? Have they been relumed? Let's open the watch and take a look at what the hell's going on inside. That could be a Frankenstein situation. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of, my, it's a big minefield. And until I felt like I had a lot more expertise, I was not going to go like swimming in, you know, the big boy deep waters with my like short pants on. That was just not going to be happening. Um, and I know enough, obviously, not to do that. But I, I love studying about it and learning about it. You know, it, it's totally awesome. I, I love doing that. But uh, I, I don't feel remotely ready to go out and, and buy a, uh, a, 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 you know, like a vintage 2499 or a 6200, you know, something like that. W- w- whatever it would be, you know, you, you know, th- throw in your own famous favorite vintage, uh, you know, watch. I, I, I'm just not going to make that decision. You're talking a mm. lot of money. And if like one little detail is off, you could be like totally three sheets to the wind on that, you know, kind of thing monetarily. So it's it's just not worth the the, the risk is just too high mm. right now, right now. Mm. And l- let me ask you, Todd, when you think about the watches that you have, do you see them as a collection or just watches do you own? You know, I'm sort of thinking, what's the long term plan for the collection or, or do you or do you have a goal, I think? I don't think it's a collection yet. It's four Mm. watches. Like I said, you can't really get carried away. (laughs) Um, uh, I don't really have a goal. You know, it's something I got interested in and I still continue to be more interested every day, which is awesome. So that's a good sign, right? Um, uh, And uh, I I tend to be slightly cautious by nature, slightly conservative. And by that, I mean politically, but I mean in terms of monetarily and really making sure that I understand very precisely what not only what i'm doing Mm -hmm. but why i'm doing it so i understand that with Mm -hmm. these four items that i bought you know like i have no problem talking about them i'm in my comfort zone but i can't i'm not wouldn't buy anything else unless i felt that way so you know if a certain watch comes up i may not initially be in that comfort zone to purchase that watch three years later that watch may come up and if the price is still i feel commensurate and you know hasn't gone up you know 27 times and i still want to buy it i may feel at that point oh well now i've arrived at a point where i have a much more you know clear Hmm. understanding of what this is and 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 why i might really want it and i might then at that point feel totally comfortable buying it what i don't want to do is buy stuff and be in the opposite position in three years feel like what the was i thinking i gotta i I gotta unload this thing that i have no interest in okay so yeah 
So you help others make decisions regarding art as an art advisor. Would another person yes. be able to help you make decisions regarding watches? Do you have a watch advisor? Well, I don't have an advisor per se, and I don't know that that, that the same sort of component in, in the horological world really exists. So I think that that's becoming a thing that's, you know, some people are trying to tout themselves as that. The problem is, is in the art world, okay, a good advisor from an ethical component, all right, would never sell from their own inventory and doesn't also act as a dealer and doesn't also represent makers or brands. The whole point to being advisors is that you have to be thoroughly, completely, 100% objective, and the fiduciary interest that you're working in is the best interest of the person you're representing, your collector, and that's the only person you're representing. But most of these people who say, you know, let me help you build your collection, I'm an advisor, are also like basically fundamentally mm. dealers. So they want to sell and get high on their own supply. And so now I'm not saying that that makes them bad people. I want to be very clear. I get really good input from some of the best dealers because they handle everything, right? But when you're talking about to me what an advisor with a capital A is, the first thing an advisor is is somebody who works in the fiduciary uh, in the fiduciary interest and only in the fiduciary interest of their client. And they can't handle they can't be their own client and have a client at the same mm-hmm. time. You can't, you know, can't have two mistresses. So um, I, do, I cannot, I'm beholden ethically from selling to anybody uh, from my own collection of artwork. I do not represent any artists or any specific galleries. You know, they are all my children kind of thing. And if they have what I want for a specific client, I will work with them. But I don't represent anybody mm-hmm. specifically um, on that account. And um, there are certain other components. And, and my clients are always clear and it's super transparent how I'm working with them. They see every invoice. The invoice doesn't come to me and then I charge them. The invoice goes to them and then I bill them separately in the art world. That doesn't happen, you know, kind of thing. So uh, they see, you know, everything I see. So my approach is, and I think the only way to be an advisor is to be hyper transparent and really quite clear about the ethical component of what you're doing. And that just, I'm, I'm not saying that it's, I'm just unaware of any situation where that exists uh, in in the horological world yet at this time. Is there a reason? Um, I just think right now it's just a different dynamic. I don't think it's like it's a, people are being bad or unethical. I just think that it's like standard. L- look, if you have a good relationship with a particular um, seller, like I have a very lovely relationship with mm. Silas Walton at a collected man, because uh, he happens to specialize in a lot of the stuff that, you know, like, it's not like I can call anybody up and go, hey, George yeah. Daniels, right? You know, it's right. I'm just saying it's like, I can call up a lot of people and go, Hugh Blow. And they're like, yeah, sure. Or I can call up a lot of people and go Rolex. And they're like, absolutely. Or Paddock. And they're like, uh-huh. Yeah. Or, you know, PK, Omer PK. Yeah, sure. But I can't call up people and go yeah. do four. You know, it's, they'll look at me like a cow seeing a choo-choo train go by for the first time. So um, it's 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 a different dynamic in the watch world. That's all. I'm not saying it's better or worse. But um, so I have really good relationships with, you know, a dealer like this and a very trusted relationship. But I'm also clear. He's working in his best interest. And he has another client on the other side of this transaction, the seller. Okay. And so I can't confuse that. Although I, I like Silas a lot, and I'm always happy to, to deal with him. And, you know, we always have been, had very agreeable dealings, and I can't say enough nice things about him. Even he understands that I mm. understand that he's not working in my fiduciary interests. 
Okay, he's really working in the seller's fiduciary interests because honestly, that's who he has probably a signed contract with for the sale of the item he's trying to sell to me. He doesn't have any contract legally with me at all. He's just, this is the price. Do you want it or not? And, you know, of course, I trust it'll be in excellent condition and all that sort of stuff. You know, there won't be condition or provenance or these sorts of issues that we Mm. were talking about earlier. Um, And if there were, I know he'd be a total gentleman about it and we'd resolve that. Um, But I also know he's got a really probably a signed contract with the consigner. (laughs) And because of that, his fiduciary responsibility, if he has one aside to himself, is to the consigner and not to the buyer. And that's fine. But he knows that. And he knows that I know that. So see, there's no confusion there. So that's the way it should be, ideally, in in a transaction. But a lot of people are very confused about who is whose client and and who is looking out for their best interests. And they screw this up all the time. And then when things go south, you know, they're stunned and surprised. Well, if, you know, if, if they if they understood what they were doing from the get-go, they, they would not be stunned and surprised. Interesting. Do you think um, Do you think this sort of lack of independent advisors, in a sense, do you think it's partly because the watch market is not as mature as the art market, for example, you know, just in terms of that? I just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just think an independent watch advisor, like let's say that advisor took, you know, 10% on every deal he closed on behalf of a client, right? Um you know, if, if, if you're selling like, you know, lower priced watches and, and I don't know mm. what that means. So I don't want that to sound like pejorative. I don't mean that in a bad way. Right. But, you know, like, let's say you're selling watches at um, let's pick a number, 10,000 oh. bucks a crack. Right. And so you make a thousand bucks on the sale. Well, to make a decent living, you'd have to be selling like how many yeah, watches exactly. a year, you know, 50, mm. 100 more. I don't know. So, I mean, the point is, is like, that's a lot of watches that you'd ha- you have to be cranking over like 10 yes. watches a month. Mm-hmm you know, kind of thing, which is like two watches a week, you know, kind of thing, every single week, three watches a week, every single week, week in and week out. And that's a slog. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's a lot, you know, kind of thing. So the issue is, I, I don't even know, I, I, if you were like an independent person and you were dealing with extremely wealthy individuals and they were buying watches at 100000 a crack or a quarter million a crack, now you're making 10,000 here and 25,000 there, right? So if you did one of those deals a month, yes. you know, that would be much more tenable, right? But I, right, but I, I just don't think that there's like uh, any people who have uh, put together, you know, a group of collectors who are collecting like with that veracity that they could, that the, the velocity, I should say, not veracity, that they could, um, uh, you know, assemble as, as their advisory clients yet. Maybe that'll change. I don't know. Do advisors tend to be paid on a percentage or fixed fee basis? Because one of the issues in real estate is you have this realtor who's kind of helping you, but they're paid a percentage of the sale price. And so they don't really have an incentive to help you reduce the ultimate price of the transaction. Right. Um, uh, advisors can be paid in four different ways. Two are not so common, and but, but work in specific situations. And two are the common ways. The less common ways are an hourly fee. It's, if it's like a very small specific project and you're like maybe a younger advisor and somebody says, you know, I have an office and I just like to get a couple pieces of artwork, you know, for like mm. the office thing you know, and it's going to be low price rather than charge somebody 10% of like, you know, you're a beginner, right? You're just starting out, you know, you know, a couple thousand here and a couple thousand there. You might say, yeah, that's fine. I'll charge you a hundred dollars an hour and we'll cap it at, you know, $500 yeah. and that's what the fee is going to be, you know, worst case. And, and you already know what's going to look good in the office. You make a couple phone calls, you show them to the, the person, they pick two, you're done and that's it, 
right? It's pretty mm-hmm. simple, okay? Um, and, and that also, the hourly fee also applies. Like when I have to go into court because I'm being called yes. as an expert by one side or the other, I would, of course, charge an hourly fee. That's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the other way sometimes is project-based where somebody would say, like, I want, I want to do my office. We've got three floors, a couple of rooms, a boardroom. We've got the lobby, this, that, and the other. And, and somebody might quote them, like, just a project fee for the entire thing. I can do the whole thing, and, and, and it'll be for X. You know, so hourly and project are less common ways to work. The more common ways are either a retainer, which is a, you know, an annual or quarterly or monthly fee that you're paid whether somebody buys or not, with the understanding that part of the process is educational, mm-hmm. and they're going to pay for their education one way or the other. They're going to either do it themselves and screw up and make a lot of mistakes and buy stuff they shouldn't, right? And that that's one way of paying yeah. for your education. Or the other way is there'll be a lot less mistakes or maybe none and no screw ups, but you're going to pay the expert to help you like avoid the mistakes mm-hmm. in the first place, and you're going to pay them. You're going to pay yeah. one way or the other for your education. It just depends, you know, how you want to do it. Um, so in that case, you might be a retainer, uh, but, and I used to be retainer based when I was like all the way up to about 2000 until like the tech, the tech crash. And then after the tech crash, something shifted between 2000 and like 2008 where the layman AIG crash, everybody moved from retainer except for one client, my longest term client who I've always been on retainer with. And it's just like, it's like 25 years at this point, you know, kind of thing. So it's very, I'm working with their children now, you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, but everybody else is now on a, on a, uh, a flat, uh, commission, uh, which is 10%, which is the industry mm. standard. So, uh, Jean-Claude Biver has often told us that art is eternal. Do you agree? No. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. In what sense? In what sense do you disagree? Well, look, if, if you look at an antiquity from, you know, uh, the time of Christ, you have no idea what the hell it is. <laughs> and it doesn't even look the way it was supposed to look because it was all polychromed. And now, you know, we look at Roman statues, you know, statues from the Roman area that are all white. They look like white pentallic mm. marble. Right. And we think they're so minimal and beautiful. But of course, they were highly painted. And if you saw them in their original state, you would think that they looked like airport tchotchkes. Yeah you know, that you would buy like at a gift shop. I mean, they really look like, if, if you've ever Googled that, if you Google like, what does a Roman statue look, uh, uh, what does a real polychrome Roman statue look like? And you see a picture of it, you'll be like, oh my God, like that's what these people actually, like that's what that's what was up at that time. You know, I mean, the, the things that are just, the marble are so beautiful, even without the arms or without the head or, you know, missing parts, we think them as like being so sculptural and gorgeous and like, oh my God, they're so ephemeral and so stunning. But the way we view those now has nothing, zero to do with how they were viewed by the maker at the time and what the intent was. That's lost. You know, it's just like the old pablum, you know, usually it was like, uh, what, what, you know, like with music, you know, um, like, Music is a universal language and then usually followed by support your local symphony orchestra, right? Well, music is not a universal language. If you you guys are in Australia, if you go listen to like music from Papua New Guinea, you won't be able to make Heidner hair of it if you don't know what you're listening to. It's not international. And if you play people from Papua New Guinea, like, you know, punk rock, they're going to like run away screaming with their hands over their ears thinking like you're about to kill them. So it's not universal in any way, shape or form. Uh and it's not universal and it's not eternal, but that's not to say that we can't learn a tremendous amount about past times and past thinking and um, you know those who went before us by 
examining them one way is through the lens of the art that they've left behind, the objects and the art and, you know, the architecture that they've left behind. We may not understand, like, we don't understand the antenna of Stonehenge. No. Nobody understands really what that's for. Is it a, so is it eternal? Not really. You know, I mean, it's still here. It'll be here a long time, which is great. But I mean, it, it, the meaning of that is lost. Hmm. And the intent of that is lost. We just look at it of a bunch of stones that are aligned in a really interesting way that do cool things. And we're like, how the hell did they do that? You know, how, how did they build the pyramids? Right. You know, given the level of engineering you know, technique that, that was available at the time. It's more like a gee whiz hmm. thing. You know, we know they did it. Gee whiz, how did they do it? But I don't even, you know, I, so uh, yeah, I, I think that that's just a, bu- a bunch of pablum art is eternal, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, 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 like music is a you know, universal language. It, it, it's nonsense. Do you think there is a dangerous, not the right word? Do you think the same sort of logic applies to watches, high-end watches that that are prized now. Do you think we will look back on the period now, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, said, what were we thinking placing value in that particular style side? Oh, I think on a lot of I think I'm, I'm, it happens the same thing with art, by the way, or whatever. Is With most of them, you'll be like, what the f- was I thinking, you know, kind of thing. But then there'll be a couple a couple of makers and a couple of watches and a couple of styles and a couple of models that you'll be like, these define for all intent and purposes, even whether I like them or not, isn't the point, but they define the language mm. of the time. <laughs> these are the, and that's what I'm always looking for. I'm like going back to that component that we're talking about. It's not the novelty. All the ones that are novelty for the most part drop away. You know, they really do mm, over time. Indeed. Um, but the ones that, that, that one way or another, like affected the language of horology you can bet that those will be around. Whether I like that particular watchmaker or that particular design by that watchmaker or not is mm-hmm. moot. It, it doesn't even enter the equation. It's just certain, you know, but it's going to be a handful, right, of things really over time. I mean, when you talk about the history of watchmaking, like, you know, you can throw a couple names out there, Earnshaw, Mudge, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, maybe a couple of others that really matter historically that have tested, you know, really stood the test of time over the last quarter millennium. But it's a small, it's, and there were, a lot, there were like a gazillion watchmakers, but even back in the 18th century and the 19th century, certainly. But, but the, 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 the leading group, Tompion, Mudge, Earnshaw, these kind of people, it's a small group that have really lasted, that people go back and they're like, oh, yeah, the Swiss lever, Mudge, you know, like that, that is a game changer. That's, that's a language that affected everything that happened after it kind of thing. So, you know. Um, and I think that it's the same thing all the way through history, whether it's art history or horological history or, or, or mm. whatever. So. so we live in an era of change. Where are the art and watch markets heading in the next decade? What's the trajectory likely to be? Uh, in, in, in a decade, if you, think, if you represent yourself as having a crystal, crystal ball, then you're a moron. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm sorry, like... I'm maybe good for like a year or okay. two or maybe three. Like with, I consider the short term, medium term is usually like three yeah. to seven years. And then long term is seven to 10 and beyond. If anybody can tell me what's happening in seven to 10 years, I'd like them to tell me the lotto numbers <laughs> I should be buying. You know, or I have a bridge in Brooklyn, a bridge in Brooklyn to sell them, you know, because I think that's like nonsense. Okay. I mean, I can take a stab at medium, but you know, that's the short term. It's like one to three years. I mean, with watches, there does really seem to be this increasingly interest, which I, I think is sort of neat, in like 
independent watchmakers, even Hodinkee, like in the last couple of days I've been reading, like they featured like a Japanese independent watchmaker who's 23, a Danish watchmaker who's still in his yep. 20s, and a, 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 yeah, yeah, and Ruben Schutz, yep, I think boys. they, yeah. they, they also, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so I mean, I think, I mean, that's kind of, isn't that kind of amazing and, and awesome? Because these are people who are fundamentally dedicated to like sitting in a room by themselves, more or less with the Daniels method, some more, some less, you know, and like trying to attack the problem of like, how do I make a watch? That's like through the lens of my own language that I'm trying to develop at simultaneously because they don't have a language now, but they're trying to develop a language. And you can only develop it by physically doing it, crapping out, deciding the things that are worth keeping, dusting yourself off, doing it again, mm. you know, doing it again, doing it again. And eventually there's like, hopefully it's like beating your head against a wall, right? I mean, eventually you either break through the wall or you have a cerebral hemorrhage and die. So <laughs> one hopes that you break through the wall at the end of the day. Um, but I think that the independent component of this is super, super um it's interesting. And, and I think that that's something in the next couple of years, clearly that's a, a track that's, and now even Phillips, for instance, like when they have their auctions, the big ones like in Zurich, they um, always have a separate like section of the independents if they have enough good ones, you know, kind of thing, they group them together and, and they make a big deal about it. So it's seen now as a subset, like vintage, you know, they're only just used to be vintage, right? And contemporary, contemporaneous. Now there's independent. Mm. That's like the new, that's like a new thing. And I think that that's here to stay. And I think a lot of people are really interested, it seems, in returning back to that oldie fashioned, you know, kind of thing of like, I want to make it all by myself dynamic, which, which is cool. And that really excites me. It doesn't mean everything I see is going to be great. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to run out like a maniac and do that. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to monitor it all for sure. I want to see how these things develop 100%. So that, that's the one thing in the world of watches. Um, in the art world, it's a lot simpler right now with all the social practice component that's been happening uh, in the art world. Uh, you know, it's right now, you, you, it's, it's really, you know, for, for the moment and for the next couple of years, it's going to be the rise of black artists mm. uh, and, you know, the continual like museum exhibitions of black artists, both young and the overlooked historical ones. And, you know, a lot of support for BIPOC, LGBTQIA kind of component of, of, right. of art making. And like, but, but, but I don't know that that's like, it, like it should have happened long ago. It's good that it's happening now. It feels like it's kind of ticked the meter a little too far in the other direction. Again, it doesn't matter whether you're, what color you are or what gender or sexuality you are. In any generation, there's still going to be only a handful of artists that matter or horologists, whatever the case may be. And I really don't care what color, gender, or sexuality they are. I just care like how freaking cool the watch is or how good the art is at the end of the day. And if the art's really amazing or the watch is really great, I'm probably going to buy it. And if it's not, I'll be like, well, that's really interesting, but I don't need to, you know, pull out my wallet. So, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, what I mean. But, but there's a lot of learning to do because these are things in the case of the art world that have been overlooked. And in some cases, it is like a slightly different language. And you're going to have to take the And I am taking the time to, to, you know, be sure that I'm looking at this artwork, not through just the only lens, which is the one I've developed, but through the lens of the intent of the maker, like, what are they trying to communicate rather than like, on the other side of the equation, like, just what am I receiving? Because those are two things, right? And uh, I want to make sure that I'm receiving the information that they're trying to send out to me correctly. 
So, you know, that, that does take some research and, and time. So, Todd, let me ask you a question that bridges the art advisory and your interest in horology. Uh, and it's really interesting that you mentioned Christian uh, Lass and Ruben because both of them were recent guests on this show as well. So we had a good chat with both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. the question I had was, as a young maker, whether you're a young artist or a young watchmaker, how do you, as the artist, catch the eye of the potential audience for your work? Because particularly, you know, I can see in, there's a lot of young independent watchmakers toiling away, locked away in their rooms. How do they, what's, in your opinion, what's the best way for them to meet the audience or reach reach the audience? You know, the truth is, is I, with COVID, things have changed so much. I don't know what that dynamic is going to be going forward. Um uh, you, you know, like I would imagine, I always thought it would be great for the big watch shows. And I've never been to one. Like, you know, of course, I go to the art fairs, but I've never been to like the what what was the watch equivalent until it, you know, it was ended forever, like Basel <laughs> World or SIHH, currently, yeah. right, or something. But it always seemed it would be cool if they would have like a section in that area that was just like a bucket load of like, like in, in, in when you go to Art Basel, right, there's like usually an area called Nova. Mm. And that's where all the younger galleries who show all the younger artists, many of like most of which, 99% of which I've never heard of, by the way, either the artists or many sure. times the galleries, um, they have their own little section. It's a bit ghettoized, but I can understand you wouldn't want them mixed in amongst the bigger galleries because I think people would just walk right sure. by them. But when they're together, people are like, let's go to that area and explore all the new cool stuff. Right. Like like now that we've done the business we have to do here, we went to this big gallery, went to that big gallery where we bought this big painting, bought that. big. Now we're done. But, you know, so now we're here at Basel. Right. And, and, and so let's go look at the cool, hip, new, young stuff and see what there is to discover and who's doing what. And that's always a very exciting component of going to Basel is doing like that thing. Mm. OK, I always thought it would be great to have a section like that in SIHH where like the booth costs were very minimal. And anybody that could be vetted in could like have a booth. The booths would be very small, right? You know, it's just almost like yeah. a stand. And if you only have like, like you were talking about, you know, like Ruben or um, Christian, like, like they would just have like their one watch there for people to see. You know, it's not about like having 17 models, you know, but, but like there could be like 20 really interesting, super young people, like under 40, 35, whatever, with like their first, and then they just had on Hodinki again, I'm sorry, I didn't recall the name, but the Japanese watchmaker, who's like 23, you know, mm-hmm. like each one would be there like with their with their new watch, you know, kind of thing. And wouldn't that be amazing to like, like have like 15 new young watchmakers and you would just like see all this crazy, crazy energy coming out, you know, and you would get to talk to them and, you know, like about what they're doing. And, and if they were doing their very first subscription, maybe like that would be the time to sign up. If you saw something you liked, you know, that would be a possibility. Or maybe they're not even there to sell anything. They're, they're just there for like visibility, getting their name out there. That's why these stands would be very inexpensive, mm. right? They'd be basically be funded by like the Rolexes and the paddocks and, you know, the Hublots and tag and all the people who are paying the huge amounts of money. Like that, that's, you know, basically how it works at Basel. The, 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 the booths for those younger galleries on a per square foot basis are much less expensive mm-hmm. than a standard booth is purposely. Cause they know that these kids don't have the money, you know, but it's part of like the branding and like the community outreach to make sure that you're supporting like the next generation that's going to be coming up, even if they're not quite ready for prime time. That's not the issue. The issue is that, you know, you're always like trying to gaze into that crystal ball that we were referring Mm. to and like 
you never know what's going to happen. And like out of those 20 people, like maybe only one is like really good if you're lucky. But that's great. Like if you discover one person, isn't that cool kind of thing. So, um, uh, but without that now, you know, I, I don't know. It's mm. really hard, you know, to really, um, I, I don't know enough about that, about the, to be honest, the, the horological component of, of, in that world, like how people you know, do that. I, I think it's I, I, right now. It just seems like it's very like collector to collector gossipy yeah. kind of. You know, oh, did you see this thing? It's really cool. I think. Are you going to get one? Yeah, I'm going to get one. I think. Yeah, I think I should get one. You know, that it's that kind of dynamic. You know, it's like a clubhouse. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. So it then comes down to tastemakers, isn't it? It really does come down to tastemakers, almost yeah. validating the work of the of the artists. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Well, 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 it's always been like that historically. I mean, the question is, you know, who the tastemakers are in the art world. You know, when you look at like the rise of galleries, which started around the, in the late, late, late 19th century, you know, 1890s, there used to be the gallerist. Well, actually, they weren't even called gallerists then. They didn't have that word. They just called themselves dealers. It was a dealer critic system, right? The dealers and the critics would were the tastemakers and they would work together to bolster an artist's career. The critics would write be paid for writing you know obviously by the dealer but they would write and you know that that would help build up a kind of critical mass and that kind of dealer critic dynamic lasted from the late 19th century all the way through the late 1950s early 60s and at that point the critics kind of lost their mojo and dealers were no longer gallerists and it turned into what was called a gallery curator system where like the big curators who were curating these big international shows like the venice biennale those big 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 shows um they became sort of like the taste makers in cahoots with the gallerists who helped like create this sort of critical mass and that lasted for about um you know another 20 years until the 80s when the not only the critics, but the curators kind of lost their mojo and it was all about money. And at that point it became the gallerist collector dynamic that helped push, um, uh, you know, artists careers forward. And it's been like that pretty much ever since, pretty much since the late eighties. So we moved from like a dealer or gallery critic to a gallery curator, to a gallery collector dynamic. And I think in the horological world, it's very much like, um, because we're talking about like mm. young watchmakers, like watchmaker, collector, right? There's really no critics, uh, but but there's blogs. They're not critical. Like I don't think of Hodinkee as being super critical, right? In the way I think of art criticism. <laughs> but you know, it's a, I don't think there are any blogs no. that are like that per se. SJX isn't. None of them are. You know, they just write about stuff they like, and you know, it, it's pretty like light, you know, light reading. Um, and, and but you know, great. I enjoy it tremendously. Um, but uh, I think that um, so, you know, you might have like a watchmaker social media component to this. Right. You know, if you want to think of it. And then there's the watchmaker collector component to this. But the collector is also on social media helping to drive stuff and also gossiping at the same time to their friends. <laughs> so it's it, it's a slightly different, you know, it's but it's kind of sort of the mm. same, but not exactly the same. Mm. Has it changed at all this year? I don't think so. I think it's only. In fact, I think it's only amped up more this year rather than changed. I think more people are spending time on social media, you know, kind of thing, and uh, they're communicating that way more and uh, uh, like what you guys are doing. It's like a case in point, you know. <laughs> so, 
Now, we, the, the, other, the other question I had was sort of really looking at the, the auction world, and we touched on that earlier, you know. So we're seeing a lot more. The watch auctions mm. are, are seem to be becoming more and more frequent. You know, there seems to be a watch auction every other week now. Has the art world, yeah. has the art auction sort of environment changed in a similar way, do you think? Well, well, the reason they're doing that is because, you know, the, all the auction companies used to have like a couple major watch auctions a year, right? Zurich, London, mm-hmm. New York right? One or two a year in each, and that was it. But now with everybody sitting on their asses at home due to COVID, and they can't even go into the auctions anyways, right? Everything is online. All the auction houses, and it was the same thing with art. The big seasons in New York, for instance, used to be May and November. Those were the big auction seasons. London was running on a um, uh, October, March, uh, you know, dynamic. Um, But what they found out is that rather than just having ginormous auctions once or twice a year, that's splitting them up into like chewier, more digestible, smaller bits. And, um, you know, having these auctions almost like on a weekly basis with like less items in them and like more consistently seemed to be a winning um, combination because the auction houses knew that their earnings were going to be down no matter what they mm-hmm. did. The question was, was how to like minimize the losses, right? They, they weren't going to be able to return to profitability. That's definitely not Mm. on the horizon. Um, I, I think it's happening with both, you know, kind of thing. It's just, it's, it's more fun. Like here's the weekly auction. There's 10 watches. You see something you like, like you can bid online. It's fun, you know, kind of thing. And we'll still have our big auction once in a while, but you know, we're doing more and more often kind of thing. So, yeah. Do you think that fragmentation into small things, do you think that um, has any effect on the type of art or watches that are desirable? Does it sort of lead to homogenization of every auction essentially looks the same? Or do you think there's still role for thematic auctions in, in, in amongst that? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the big auctions will always try to be themed a little more mm. coherently because they're the big auctions, you know, kind of thing. But the other ones are just, as you say, it's just like a homogenous mishmash of yeah. like stuff. You know, but also the price range generally, genu- generally tends to be much lower. So like a lot of people can jump in at the, I'm just saying at the 5,000, 1,005, 10, 15, 20, 25,000 level. Um, sure. But, you know, when you have obviously the auctions that are going to have six figure items, seven figure items, you know, kind of thing, gee whiz, you know, that has to be put together with a, a touch more thought and care in terms of the overall arc of, arc of the auction and, you know, so people don't get exhausted or tired and that the exciting lots are coming up at the right time. You're kind of telling a story with an auction. You know, you really do have an introduction, like the main story and like a denouement. Mm. You know, you really do. It's like the arc of a story. That's the way a good auction is assembled. Um, where the online ones that we're talking about, you just, just you know, throw it all against the wall and see what sticks. It's, it, it, it's less demanding that way. So... But also because the price points are lower, which means more people supposedly can, can, can get involved, sure. you know, kind of thing. So it's, it, that makes it a little bit easier, too. So if our listeners are considering making a purchase of either a work of art or a watch, what should they consider if you were to give them some criteria? Well, the most important criteria, that's the most overarching one, is education. And they really shouldn't be making any purchases until they feel fully confident about the decision they're making. And the only way that one can be truly confident about something is to have um, the requisite amount of, in, of information and education so that when you make your decision, you understand the risk, the reward, and, you know, a, a, and you're comfortable 
with that. Um, and it doesn't matter at all. I want to be, I can't emphasize this enough. It doesn't matter whether you're buying a $500 watch, a $50,000 watch, or a $5 million watch. It's the same process and it, it takes the same amount of time, to be quite honest. So it's not about how much money, you know, and people seem to confuse that sometimes. Like, well, if I'm just buying an inexpensive watch, you know, I just go out and buy it. Well, it's true. I, I, I guess if you're buying, a relatively low priced watch, you know, 500, a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks. And the dynamic of the money isn't like so much you're thinking of it as an investment dynamic. You're just like, look, I'm buying a watch. It's going to cost me, let's pick a number, mm. uh, 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 3,000 bucks, right? And uh, I'm going to have the watch, let's say, five years, right? So the watch is costing me 600 bucks a year. Think of it in those terms. So it's, it's less than $2 a day. You know, if you amortize it, mm -hmm. right, over the course of the five years. And like, so it's a buck 80 a day or whatever. Like, like if I go to Starbucks and buy a coffee, like that's three bucks. So it's like half the price, like of a cup of coffee a day or, or, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to like give you like, so yeah, if you're going to get that much enjoyment out of the artwork or the watch, whatever it is at $3,000. And at the end of five years, even if you decide you don't like it and you want to sell it, let's say it's worth zero. Okay. It's worth zero. You can't give it away at that point. The point is, is you amortize it over five years. It cost you a buck eighty a day, whatever it was. You got a lot of enjoyment out of it. You amortized your use value out of the item. Now, if you can sell it for a thousand, or two thousand, or three thousand, or even at a profit of four thousand, five thousand, well, in that case, you can either reduce the use value or just actually turn a profit, kind of thing, yeah. right? But you have to be comfortable with those numbers. You have to run the numbers and make sure, regardless of whether it's the the 500, the 50,000, or the $5 million item that you feel comfortable with the numbers at whatever level they are. And everybody has a different sense of risk and reward and fear and greed about those kind of components. Um, and you have to really be honest with yourself. You have to do like an internal inventory to make sure that you're you know, not kind of like lying to yourself because there's no use in doing that, right? Uh, and, and, and those are the, you know, like those are key things. Uh, that that I think I'm concerned about things the, the simple things like is it authentic is what, is is it in a preserved and in perfect state has has the case been uh, powered those are obvious like small detail things like that's why I'm not even talking about those that's mm. like nuts and bolts things that, that that a monkey should know about right and can look into but you're asking me about like how do I go about my decision making process for myself and my clients mm. I'm not worried about those those sorts of things that's uh, are, are the hands original you know is the bra is the bracelet straight you know, it's, you know, stuff like that. Does it have box and papers? You know, mm. uh, what's the provenance? Was it, did, did this go through Philip's hands? You know, okay. You know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, did I see like so-and-so superstar wearing this watch on Instagram? You know, like what, what, whatever. That's just all noise. Cause that's like easy stuff. But in terms of like the serious decision-making process, I'm, I'm, I want to be confident, which means I need to be educated. I have to feel, speaking for myself personally now, going back to the original things, I'm not interested in novelty as much as I am in development, right? So it has to pass that sort of novelty slash development test, if you want to call it that, you know, kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, I have to feel like I'm educated enough to know what I'm buying, that I understand uh, both the value of the work, meaning the value being the the historical value, the meaning of the watch, like why is this an important watch? And then also the price. I have to understand the market. Like is a price for this watch in this condition that's not polished with original hand, all that stuff, is this the correct price? 
you know, uh, th- 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 that's education too. And once you've gone through all of that, then, you know, you can make your decision to pull out your wallet or not. So that's kind of, you know, what it's about for me. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, that, and I think that measured approach and the importance that you place on educating yourself and, you know, to make sure you make an informed decision is one that sort of often doesn't, does not get talked often. You know, there's all about the hype and, you know, a lot of things that are all about hype, whether it's hot or not or whatever, but the approach you outlined, certainly the way, the way to go as yeah, fantastic. So very, very good. Well, look, Todd, as we sort of start to wrap up, one of the one of the things we often like to ask our guests and ourselves is really uh, for some recommendations, uh, either Instagram or otherwise, for ourselves and our listeners to really sort of expand their horizons. So I might throw to Adam actually first with this one. Sure. So my cultural recommendation is an album called Deluxe by Todd Levin. I I listened to it twice. I loved it. It's awesome. I warned you, Todd. Adam's a big fan. Yeah, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Seriously. So I love to hear abstract music, Philip Glass, Underworld, uh, Lemon Jelly. And for whatever reason, it really uh, was appealing to me. And so if if there are similar works by uh, other artists, to deluxe. Uh, I'd be curious if there are. Um, I'd also like to listen to them. Um, yeah, that was fantastic. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to tie that recommendation to horology, Adam, you're saying it resonated. It with resonated you. with me. Exactly. Exactly. It was... <laughs> very, very good. Um, Todd, I might throw to you if you had anything watch-related, art-related, cultural. I'm trying to think. I mean... Yeah, I mean, watch related. I I don't know enough, you know. So I'm always looking at new stuff, and um, and the things that I probably know, most people know, you know, like obvious things. So I, I can't really say I'm going to be really helpful on pointing people in useful directions with watch related, horological related stuff. Um, in terms of art, it's just such a big subject. Like I wouldn't know where to start. I'm not trying to be evasive, but you know, I mean, if somebody said, you know, I'm interested in this or I'm interested in that, then I could say, Oh, okay. You might want to do this or that. But just in general, I mean, I referred to this book in, in the Hodinkee uh, talking watches episode I did. And I still think it's like, if somebody wants to read and just learn more about like how to look at art and like, why is art, why should I even care about art? Or like, why is art interesting? Uh, You know, kind of thing and that sort of stuff. Um, it's a, a book that I spoke about there um, by uh, French uh, intellectual Andre Malraux called The Voices of Silence. Uh, but, you know, you have to remember that this book was written like in the 40s and the 50s. And so, you know, you can't think of like super, super contemporary art, like in light of this book, though, it's amazing how much it does point towards that and how applicable it still is uh, some 70 years after, uh, you know, it was printed. But um that's just like a standard reading book that I give to, you know, people who it's a big book. It's a bit daunting. It looks like it's ginormous and, you know, kind of thing. And it takes time to get through it. But um, I don't know if that's going to be super helpful, but that's one of my favorites at least. Yeah. And I must confess after I watched uh, that, that um, talking watches episode with you did with Hodinkee, I did seek out that book and it's a fantastic read. Once again, it's one of those things where you you know have to read it in in sections and in chunks. But it has certainly helped me align my thinking about 
viewing art and viewing, you know, appreciating sort of the thinking, the conception of art. Yeah, and even if you don't understand everything in the book or you'd like you don't know every artwork, I don't think it's necessary. I think they're just go to the next page. You know what I mean? But there's so many useful general takeaways because he writes so beautifully. I think about art. Mm. Um, he can pack into more in one sentence than many writers can pack into like an entire paragraph. Um, the language mm. is so beautiful. I should say the translation because it was originally written by Mel Rowe in French and a gentleman named Gilbert Stewart is the one who did that very fantastic mm. translation. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's almost a book you can open up anywhere and just like read 20 pages and have like a good takeaway, you know, so. Definitely, that's a fantastic, fantastic recommendation. Um, I'll I'll do mine. Uh, mine, I'll just tie it into horology. I think um, uh, I'll put I'll recommend somebody off, off Instagram an account that I think is worth people chasing up. It's at Interior Angles, and it's a collector with really interesting selection of very very cool indie watch pieces you know pieces by independent watchmakers cool and what this person does is got real fantastic photography as well micro photos and just uh, really nice. good art. wow mm, some very very cool stuff yeah so i think it's a it's an account well worth you know whether you're into watches indie watches or just really cool micro and macro photography yeah it's a really good one to 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 get acquainted with nice but that's Brilliant. I just look, Todd, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us. I think it's been a really illuminating conversation just across your journey to collecting watches, your approach to educating yourself and, you know, learning about stuff and just appreciating art in the horology arts of sense. So I just can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much. Yes, total fun. Yes, thank you. I've certainly learned a lot. Brilliant. Well, the last thing we often say is, you know, about us, Fifth Wrist, we set it up as a platform by enthusiasts and for enthusiasts. So if you wanted to join us, contribute, write reviews, or even come on the podcast, please get in touch. Follow Fifth Wrist on Facebook and Instagram or on our website at fifthwrist.com. Like and subscribe to the pod. Leave us a review. Um, follow me. I'm at Times Roman AU. My co-host, Adam, is at Medium Watch. And our fantastic guest today, Todd Levin, is at, at Levin Art Group 1. Thank you for joining us, and as we always say, stay on time. <laughs>